So we come this morning, we get to again look at Paul's defense of the gospel. Paul here has been defending the gospel of faith, defending it against those who would have been of the Jewish persuasion, believing that one was made righteous before God by the keeping of the law. And Paul is defending the truth that salvation is by grace through faith alone. And we have been unpacking that through this particular series. And he has, Paul, been confronting those Jews which had thought that by their own righteousness, by their keeping of the law, they were able to be right before God. They had claimed Abraham as their example, just as they would also highly exalt Moses. They would claim Abraham would be that very father that they would look to demonstrating his example. And it is to Abraham that Paul turns and says, Okay, then, Abraham is your example. Let us look at Abraham and examine him from the scriptures. And that's what he does in chapter 4. Chapter 4 is Paul's exposition of Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. And in this, he gave three points. You had, of course, the introduction there, uh, verse 1 of chapter 4. What shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, has found? How is it that Abraham is made righteous? How is it that he is able to stand before God uprightly? That's the introduction salvo that Paul makes to draw in his audience. And then he gives three supporting points, demonstrating, first of all, Abraham's righteousness is by grace. This came to him. The promise of salvation came to Abraham as a grace of God. Abraham didn't earn it. Abraham didn't qualify himself in some way. Abraham didn't work for it. He, didn't, he wasn't something beautiful within him that demonstrated that he was worthy to receive this favor. It was an outworking of God's own gracious activity. He showed favor. He was gracious. That's what the text indicates there in verse 4. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a grace but as what is due. Abraham couldn't have worked for it. If he had worked for it in any way, it would not be grace any longer. It would have been a, what was due him, something that was owed. It would have been his wages. So Paul makes clear then salvation, the righteousness which was given to Abraham, the righteousness that he was credited with in verse 3, was reckoned to his account, is the result of grace and grace alone. He then goes on in verses 9 through 12 and seeks to demonstrate that this righteousness comes apart from the law. And it's, again, the argument that even chronologically this is true because Abraham was declared righteous even before the giving of the law. The giving of the, the covenant, the giving of the sign, the seal of the covenant wasn't till later, many years later, that Abraham received the seal of the covenant sign so that there's no way it could have been an act of obedience on Abraham's part that qualified him. That's why those who are saved, it doesn't matter, as verse 9 says, the blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also. 
When was it credited to him? Was it credited when he was circumcised or uncircumcised? The answer is when he was uncircumcised before he had received the sign of the covenant. There's no way then that the law could have established Abraham's righteousness. To which then lastly he demonstrated Abraham's righteousness is through faith. So he says there in verse 14, It was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Verse 14, for if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. Down in verse 16, for this reason it is by faith. Abraham believed God. It is his faith that the scripture is honored, not his works. So this section ultimately answered three questions for us. First question, on what basis are we made right with God? Verses 1 through 8 demonstrate the basis that we're made right before God is grace alone. The second question that this text answered is, who can be made right before God? That's in verses 9 through 12. And the answer, anyone who believes, whether circumcised or uncircumcised, they can be right before God. And then lastly, by what means are we made right before God? And the answer, by faith. The basis, the very foundation, is the grace of God. The means by which that grace is manifest, that salvation is manifest, is by faith. Let's move then to Paul's concluding remarks, and that is in verses 23 through 25. And here's what Paul states here. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. This is now Paul's conclusion to all that he has been stating. And he concludes by giving two kind of final lessons, two points to conclude this lesson here. The first point is this. Paul tells us why the scripture account of Abraham was written. And then secondly, Paul gives us the truth to anchor our hope in just like Abraham had. So we have the reasons what to anchor our hope in, and we have why these Old Testament accounts was written. So let's first look at why this Old Testament account was written. And this is a rather interesting statement in verse 23 and the beginning of verse 24, when he says, Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was reckoned to him, but for our sake also. Now, this seems to be a very strange statement. Very strange because when this was written, Abraham was dead. It wasn't written by Abraham. It certainly wasn't written by any prophet living during Abraham's time. This wasn't written until Moses came along and received from God revelation and Moses went back and wrote the Pentateuch and Moses wrote this account well after Abraham was dead. So then it begs the question, what is Paul meaning when he says it was not for his sake only? 
In what sense would this be for Abraham's sake? Well, in one sense, this is one of the few examples where God reveals the testimony of one's judgment before the day of judgment. When God had reckoned in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6 that Abraham was reckoned as righteous, he is giving what his divine testimony would be. His judgment will be on Abraham. So in one sense, Abraham will have for his sake, in this small sense, the testimony of Scripture is assured that he is reckoned as righteous. But it really isn't for Abraham. It is, as the text indicates there, verse 24, but for our sake. This was written for our sake. That passage in Genesis 15, 6, that testimony that as, as verse 3 of chapter 4 indicates, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That verse was written for us. It was written for our instruction. It was written for our benefit. It was written for our edification. So by implication... and. Notice, or at least let's answer this question from the text. What does it mean then for our? To whom is Paul referring? The our. Well, clearly he refers to Paul. He is the one who is presently believing. He's including himself in this. In the first person plural, or uh, it is ours. Possessive. But there's more. It is to all those who will believe. That's what the text indicates there. But for our sake also, to whom it will be credited, future tense, as those who believe in him. All the ones who will believe in him. That verse has been recorded. To everyone who will believe, to all believers, this text has been written. It is for our edification. What particularly? Because it is showing us how faith works. It is showing us what God honors. It is showing us the example that God gives testimony to and declares, as he says back in verse 3 of chapter 4, as righteous. Now there is an implication out of all this. When he says back now, why was this written? It has been written not only for his sake, but also for ours. What he is indicating to us is the value of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is still relevant for today. Paul has regularly affirmed this throughout the scriptures. He has regularly affirmed the purpose and usefulness of the Old Testament. For example, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 11, in a context in which uh, Paul records to the Corinthians the grumbling among the, uh, the uh, Old Testament saints and the judgment of God that came among the Old Testament people when they grumbled Paul says this, these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Meaning the Old Testament accounts were written for our example. We can learn from them. We can be instructed by them. Turn over to 2 Corinthians, or or, uh, 2 Timothy actually. Turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 3 because... It's interesting, in, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, we have, um, we come to verse 16 and 17 often, 
when it says that all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. We come to those verses and we think, uh, naturally, this is referring to the, to the New Testament uh, that we have in our hands, the New Testament canon. This is referring to the scriptures that we received from the apostles and the prophets. Well, no, go back one verse. It says, well, two verses. Go to verse 14. You, speaking to Timothy, however, continue in the things that you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. Verse 15, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. What is he referring to there? He's not referring to Paul's letters at that time. He's referring to the Old Testament at this time. You have learned the, through the Old Testament that which is able to lead you to faith, which is in Christ Jesus. It leads you to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And then Paul gives all Scripture is inspired. He's speaking of the Old Testament in this particular emphasis. But even beyond that, to all sacred Scripture, even what we would recognize as written by the apostles, just as Peter recognized that Paul's Writings were of Scripture. The point in all this is that the Old Testament is valuable to us that we can learn from and grow from. It's not something that we must abandon. The Old Testament has fallen into hard times. You can turn back to Romans chapter 4. But the Old Testament has fallen into hard times. It's fallen out of favor in this generation. In 2018, in a sermon on Acts 15, Andy Stanley said that the church needs to unhitch itself from the Old Testament just as Peter, James, and Paul did. That we need to abandon it. It's not for us today that the church has something different. We're under, we're under a new work of God. We don't need to go back to the Old Testament. There's also been, among scholars, an attempt to disconnect us from the Old Testament. Hermeneutics have changed so that we look at the Old Testament more through figurative lenses, looking to read Christ into every passage, looking to find a figurative meaning rather than the understanding of what the original audience would have understood. We seek to find some specialized meaning. Or we tend to view the Old Testament through New Testament priority, reading the New Testament back into the Old Testament. And if... That's not enough. Different theological traditions tend to make us view the Old Testament lesser in lesser ways. Even some of my own heritage, I think about the background I've grown up in in dispensational circles. Dispensationalists haven't really been very friendly in this category either, making such a distinction between the church and Israel that they've separated the Old Testament altogether and said, well, that's just for Israel. It has no bearing on us altogether. We're new covenants believers. We're in the church age. We don't go back to the old covenant at all. In fact, strong classic dispensationalists will even say that there are certain parts of New Testament texts that we wouldn't teach to the church, i.e., Matthew chapters 5-7, through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, Go back, someone would say, that's for kingdom living, that's not for the church age, that's for someone else, not for us. And 
covenantalists aren't any better in their theology either. Replacing Old Testament uh, believers, they're taking the promises from the Old Testament and figuratively applying it to the New Testament. None of that honors the Scripture. It honors the Old Testament. The fact is that these things, as Paul says, were written for our instruction. I said that to the Corinthians here. He is pointing out, as he is drawing out of Genesis 15, verse 6, he's drawing out the principle. He is t- saying to us, this is as important to us. It's for our benefit. We can learn from this. So the first thing we should recognize as we come to this, and he concludes, is the importance of all the Scriptures. All of it is the Word of God. From Genesis to Revelation. And as such, it is beneficial to the believer. We can learn from and grow from. We're not reading the Old Testament through the lens of replacement theology. We're not reading the Old Testament trying to find something God did not intend to say. We're not reinterpreting the Old Testament to find new meaning. We're seeking to understand what God's message is. By the way, this doesn't mean that the Old Testament is easy to understand. We're about to start a study in the prophecy of Daniel. When you get to Daniel chapter 12, and Daniel feels like he can understand nothing, and God says, you can't. I haven't fully revealed it to you. We're not saying that the human author fully grasped everything that there was to understand at that time. We know they did it. I mean, Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 1 that they longed to understand the timing of the events. We know they didn't get the full grasp, the full understanding that God fully revealed later. But that doesn't mean there wasn't purpose, and there wasn't a work, and there wasn't a message that would be useful. So this is the first point that Paul makes here. He demonstrates for us the credibility and testimony of all the scriptures, particularly the Old Testament, that we can look to and learn from rather than nullifying and abandoning. We can come and we can approach the scriptures knowing that the scriptures will edify us, the scriptures will build us up, that they are timeless truths that reveal the character of God, that reveals the consistency of God's work, And this is ultimately what we're learning here in Romans chapter 4, is the testimony of God's work has been the same. The Old Testament saint was not saved in a different way that the New Testament believer is saved. They were saved by grace through faith. Which leads us to the second point that Paul demonstrates in his conclusion. In his concluding remarks, he gives us the content of our faith. Beneficial, all that was written is beneficial for us, and now we see the content of our faith. Paul gives us truth to anchor our hope in, just like Abraham had truth to anchor his hope in. For Abraham, the content of his faith was to believe the promises of God and to walk according to those promises. God promised to make him a great nation, to bless his name. God promised that he would give him his descendants as numerous as the stars in the heavens. He gave those promises. And that, as verse 17 indicates in chapter 4, that Abraham had believed that God was able to perform these things, that he had the power, he was able to accomplish it. 
He was able to give life and he was able to create that out of nothing so that he had the ability to accomplish everything he said he would. And now Paul, in this section, draws our attention to the essential elements to the gospel, the essential elements to faith. This isn't everything doctrinally that could be said, but what we could say of this, just in these two verses, what we have is the elevator pitch of the gospel. If you spend any time in marketing materials, you've heard that statement, the elevator pitch. What would you give, say to somebody if you could only speak to them in enough time to ride between an elevator? What, how can you essentially boil your message down? Well, this is the essential boiling the message of Christianity down to three elements. We could boil like this. We could say this. To have faith is to believe there is a God who sent his son Jesus, who is our Lord, to die and then raised him from the dead. There is the essential elements of the faith. The elevator pitch of the gospel. God is, he has sent his son, who is the Lord Jesus Christ, to die because of our sin, and he raised him from the dead. That becomes the very center of all that we believe, out of which all the promises flow out of, which is everything we're anticipating flows out of these truths. This is the heart and soul of the gospel. It is, as the text indicates there, as those who believe in him. It is for us. This is what we believe. We believe in him. He is the object of our faith. We believe in his son, and we believe in the work demonstrated among his son, the power of God demonstrated. That's what this is emphasizing. Just as Abraham had a content of faith to believe, we too. Let's just unpack this a little bit. Those, the first element, those who believe in him. That's what he says there, verse 24, as those who believe in him. Look at his work next, but particularly they believe in God. The first element of a believer, the first element of a Christian is that he lives in light of God. He believes God exists. We believe there is a God we live a life as if God exists. We, we live understanding and knowing that God is all-powerful who rules and reigns, and we live every moment in light of him. In fact, I think most people struggle with this basic building block of faith. They live as if there is no God. But that's not how the Christian lives. A Christian lives knowing that there is a God. I mean, look around. Society is trying to scrub a God out of existence. Trying to be able to tell people, you can choose for yourself your identity. No longer do you have to live under the providence of God. You didn't like how you entered this world? Change it. We have the technology to do it. We have the ability. We will give you the medications. We'll just change your identity. You can change God's design for marriage. You don't like how marriage looks. You want it to look a different way. You can change it. You can change God's design for male and female. You can change even God's design for morality. The world is trying to scrub God out of existence. 
It is within secular society an all-out war against God. And if that is not enough, it is also trying to control the narrative, the message. God does not exist. And this is where our fundamental struggle is. As a believer, we come to the realization we believe God is. Listen, this is where our heart is struggling. Every time we sin, we sin at this level, we war against God. Every act of unbelief is a, a unbelief against God. Every time we choose to sin in one way, we are saying at that moment, my will is more important than your will. My ways, my desires, my wants are more important than God's. Every act, every transgression at that moment is an act of dethroning God and placing ourselves in His place. But that's not a believer. A believer is one who believes in Him, acknowledges His way. Particularly, this is why Hebrews says in Hebrews 11.6, Without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is rewarder of those who seek him. We believe there is a God who created the heavens and the earth. We believe that this God created all of these things out of nothing. As our scientists are trying to find the edges of the universe, we are mindful of God even sets those boundaries. They're trying to figure out how how all that matter came together. We are already aware of the answer. He has created these things out of nothing. The one who is perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, and just in all of his ways has revealed himself. This one has sent his son into the world And this God has revealed Himself eternally as three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God has made Himself known. I love the old adage that they've talked about in regards to faith. You say, this is just hard to believe. It's hard to believe that in that kind of God, it's hard to believe uh, looking around that there is a God in light of all that's going on, Typically today, even when one would look at, look at uh, the wars and other fighting and other you know, evils taking place, and how could there be a good God if all these evils are taking place? I say simply this. I only have to believe one thing and everything in life makes sense. I deny that one thing and nothing makes sense. I only have to believe that God is, and then everything that is going on around, I could measure by what God has said, and it all makes sense. I deny God, then nothing makes sense. I deny that God exists. You can't even define what male and female is anymore. If there are, again, you can't even define pronouns anymore once you denied God. Once you denied God, you don't even know, again, what restroom to use any longer, you know, what identity is, and what marriage looks like, or what anything looks like. Fundamental basis, the fundamental core of the Christian faith is that we worship the living God. Secondly, not only do we worship the living God, we worship the God who has sent his Son into this world. 
We believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Verse 25, who was delivered over because of our transgressions. Two things that Paul demonstrates here about Jesus Christ, his person and his work. We believe in Jesus Christ, the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice what the text says about the person. He is described there in verse 24, Jesus our Lord from the dead. That is his personhood. He is the Son who is sent into this world. He is our Lord. And his work, he Verse 25, was delivered over because of our transgressions. He bore upon himself our iniquities. The person of Jesus Christ is revealed in the scriptures. He is God, very God, God incarnate. He is also man, very man. He had all the limitations of humanity. He was born of the Virgin Mary, descendant of King David demonstrated while here on earth all the miraculous powers. He demonstrated his authority over diseases. He demonstrated his authority over demons. He demonstrated his authority over nature and creation. He demonstrated even his authority over death. Calm storms, drove out demons, healed the sick, and raised the dead. People say, well, that doesn't mean that he was God. He never claimed to be God. Well, the father did. Remember when he was baptized, and after he was baptized by John the Baptist, and he came out of the, out of the waters, a voice out of heaven said, This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. God the father spoke, and people heard. Demons spoke and said such things, that Jesus was the son of God. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 28 and 29, when Jesus was traveling, he came upon two demon-possessed men. Those two demon-possessed men were living in tombs and driving everyone, everyone away. They were scaring everyone. Christ came into the scene, and they came rushing up to him. And when they came up to them, they said to him, What do we have to do with you, Son of God? The demons recognized who he was, the Son of God. Even Jesus' own disciples recognized him as the Son of God. Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus asked his disciples, Who do you say that I am? Or who do the people say that I am? And they gave various testimonies. Some say you're Elijah, others the prophet. Then he turned the question, Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter, who walked with him, called him the Son of God. The Father called him the Son of God. Even the demonic world recognized him as the Son of God. He is the head of the church. So that we come and we believe in Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, who is the head of the church, who is the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. He is who he is as the Son of God, God incarnate. It's also what he has done, his work. Again, as verse 25 here indicates in Romans chapter 4, he was delivered over because of our transgressions. He took upon himself our transgressions, our rebellion. He is the perfect sacrifice that God has sent. He and he alone can atone for sin. 
There's no other sacrifice. There's no other way that one can atone for sin but through Jesus Christ alone. And when Christ laid down his life, he laid down his life for his people. What is he? He is the way of salvation. The way of atonement is through him. He is the Lamb of God. What has he done? He has redeemed his people from their transgressions by laying himself down. He is in his person and his work. It's what we believe in. It leads to the last element, the power of God on display. Could tie this back to the first one. In him whom we believe, we believe in God, that God exists. But we believe in the demonstration of the power of God, particularly as verse 25 indicates that he was raised because of our justification. In verse uh, 24, um, those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord. The power of God was demonstrated in the resurrection of Christ. The third aspect of what we believe, we believe in God who raised Christ from the dead. Christ was raised. He literally died and he was literally raised on the third day. The power of God was demonstrated and then Paul makes this connection because of our justification. If Christ did not raise from the dead, none of us would be able to be reckoned as righteous. None of us would be able to believe. This is the distinction, again, between Christianity and all other human religions. All other human religions are religions of human achievement. Only Christianity is the religion of divine achievement. God deals with the righteousness problem by putting our unrighteousness on Christ and putting Christ's righteousness on us. And he demonstrated that he was satisfied with that when he raised Christ from the dead. That he was declared again us innocent in Christ. Now let's draw an implication out of this and wrap up this morning. Why all of this? These two points. I want to go back to then verse 23 and 24. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was reckoned to him, but for our sake also. Abraham was called to believe God. And God was doing the same thing for Abraham, or will do the same thing for us that he did for Abraham. He spoke to Abraham, laid out his promises, called Abraham to follow. God promised the blessings. God promised to make him great. God promised to deliver him, etc. Abraham responded in faith and followed. That's exactly what God has done for us. Salvation is by grace. Grace comes to us. It comes to us by God. God sent his son. God sent his word it is through the proclamation of his word that our hearts are transformed. It is the word of God sent to us and taught to us by the apostles and prophets and faithful teachers who follow in line teaching the word that transforms us. It is that good news that comes to us that calls us to follow God. 
It calls us to believe upon God. It calls us to entrust ourselves to the Son who has covered our transgressions. It calls us to trust ourselves to His redeeming work. And with those truths come all the promises. When we believe, we have the promises that we'll be made His children. He will make us saints, heirs of eternal life. He will make us children of God and fellow heirs of glory. He will exalt us above the angels in Christ Jesus. He will make us into the very image of Jesus Christ. He will give us eternal life and a kingdom to partake of. This is what we're anticipating and living for. There is a kingdom coming where a perfect ruler will reign and put an end to not only Israel's transgression, but to all of sin. Kingdom of peace. And justice, kingdom of prosperity and health, the kingdom of glory and righteousness and holiness. A kingdom which there will be perfect restoration, restoration between God and man, but also between men and men, and a restoration of creation when creation will be delivered from its groanings. And a kingdom, again, where the wicked will be judged and cast out and not allowed to enter. And so the, the Christian then lives in these hopes, these anticipations. We live in these promises which we have not yet received, but we are waiting to receive. And so each moment we're walking in faith in light of these riches, these promises. Just as Abraham was a moment, imagine at that moment back in Genesis fifteen six, or back in Genesis chapter 12 actually, Genesis chapter 12, God comes to Abraham and calls Abraham out. Says to Abraham, leave your father's land and I will make you a great nation and your descendants be numerous as the stars in the heavens. Just like that, God comes to us and he proclaims to us, abandon your self-will and your self-seeking. Abandon this earthly kingdom Pursue my kingdom. Turn from the worship of yourself to the worship of God. Turn from trusting yourself to the trusting of the Son of God. Turn from trusting in your strength to the power of my strength, and I will redeem you, transform you. And I will give you all these things. So that's how we live each day. We are God's people who believe his message and we live each and every moment anticipating the promises we have not yet received. Why? Because we believe God is able and powerful. He's able to create out of nothing. Able to do the impossible and the improbable. Able to demonstrate his marvelous power at any moment And we see it regularly. We see it regularly when a hardened heart is immediately converted. We see the power of God on display. When one used to oppose truth, now believes upon God. It is the work of God in their heart that transforms them. We see his power. And then we experience his power regularly when we fellowship with one another and we see the grace of God ruling and reigning in our lives. And we see the marvelous work of God when we go to the scriptures and God encourages us and strengthens us with his promises. So that then we recognize we walk, Christian, in the same faith that Abraham walked in. We believe God's promises.